Jesus commands our destiny. The Bible says that Jesus is the captain of our faith. And he is the commander. He's the one in charge. He is the man who is God. He's our Savior. Well, grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are still in the first chapter of the first letter written to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I will, I will read just verses 9 and 10 and then open with a prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful. We could have a whole sermon on those three words. <laughs> God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have spoken to us. It's an astounding thought. You have no need of us. There was no need that we would hear your words, that there would be faith and repentance. But God, your love has called it into being. You've loved us with a great love. Therefore, you've spoken to us. You've chosen to set your love on us. Therefore, we have the gospel. We do have faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, and we can know your great faithfulness because we were called into fellowship together through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we ask that today as we examine your word that we would see it clearly, that we would learn and grow, but that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, that this would be heart knowledge, that your word would penetrate into our soul that we would be changed by what we discover in your word today, and that our hearts would be knit closer together as your church, your bride. We are the people of your name. Give us great unity today around your word and around the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, God, I ask that I would not get in the way here this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people and that you would grow us together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question that you might not want to raise your hand for. It's always good to open a sermon with one of those, huh? Who likes politics? <laughs> I've always liked politics. In fact, I... Uh, my pastor in central Missouri used to poke fun at me because I was probably the only young man in my high school who made a habit of watching Bill O'Reilly in the evenings. Uh, it was just something I always liked. I, I watched and listened to and engaged in politics. And what a year for politics this year is, huh? It is something that perhaps we've not seen in our lifetimes, but Politics uh, have been crazy as long as there have been people. Disputes and disagreements and slander and gossip and mudslinging and all of that is as old as sin. And uh, 
<laughs> I was thinking about how I, what example of politics I wanted to bring up uh, for this sermon, and there are lots of examples in American history. My, perhaps my favorite era of American history that I like to study is after the Reconstruction era, after the Civil War, leading into the turn of the century with Teddy Roosevelt. I love reading about him. A lot of stuff I don't agree with that he did, but he's just like one of the most fascinating people that's ever lived, Teddy Roosevelt. And the 1912 election, were any of you around for that? Uh, but no, uh, the 1912 election was an interesting election in American history. The Republican candidate, uh, William Howard Taft, only got eight electoral votes, four from Vermont and four from Utah. <laughs> so good, good job, Utah. Um, the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, won that year. And the second place electoral vote getter was Teddy Roosevelt with a new party, the Bull Moose Party. That was the year when he was going around and making his speeches that he got shot before one of his speeches. The bullet came into his chest and it went through his glasses case and through his speech that was folded up and tucked into his pocket and it was lodged in his chest. He coughed for a while and he wasn't coughing up blood and he thought, well, I must be good. And he went on and gave a 90-minute speech. And he said it would take more than that to kill a bull moose. Therefore, the Bull Moose Party was born. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, they used to be friends. In fact, they were together at that Republican National Convention. Roosevelt was the one who wanted Taft to be nominated. But then they started disagreeing on tariffs and things, and their friendship was ruined. The unity in the Republican Party was ruined. They had no shot to win and to beat Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson was elected. Well, politics is something that we hear about in history books. It's something we hear about every day in our news cycle. And it's also something that we hear about in the church. Church politics is a term. It exists, unfortunately, sadly, tragically. Denominations and movements exist that oppose one another, that go in different directions. This one singular branch of Christianity that we see in the book of Acts, even before we get to the end of the book of Acts, you see it splitting, don't you? Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways. You see different movements disagreeing with each other. The Jews and the Gentiles were always having a hard time getting along. And then today, in the year 2020, how many different denominations exist? You couldn't count them all. You couldn't fit them all on one big poster. There are so many. So many die and new ones are born. But not just in the broad brush view of Christianity do we see politics. We also see it in each and every local church. The local outposts, the local expressions, the gathering of God's people, what we're doing right now as we worship together in this group, we see politics. Church politics are as old as churches. And today... We're going to have some instruction from God's Word as to how we are to think about this, how we are to think about factions, how we're to think about division and movements. How did we get here? Well, let's look at verse 9 again, because this is going to need to be our focus through the rest of the book. Chapter 1, verse 9, how did these, this church get together to even have these problems? Well, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus builds His church. 
God is the one doing the work, calling people into fellowship, bringing people together from various backgrounds. Remember the Corinthians, they're a varied group. This was a city in Greece that had a lot of foot traffic going through. It had a lot of different backgrounds, and God is faithful. He's the one who called them into fellowship through Jesus. Got to have that at the forefront of your mind as we go through this book. Because if you're looking for the Corinthians to be faithful, you're going to be disappointed. You need to remember that God is faithful. If you're looking for evidence that the Corinthians were the ones who placed themselves into this fellowship and they're the ones who keep themselves in this fellowship, you're going to be disappointed. Because God is the one, the faithful God of the universe is the one who calls into fellowship and brings people together. Therefore, in light of that truth, in light of this fellowship, saved sinners need to be encouraged to be unified. And that's verse 10. And I want us to camp out here for quite a while. Where Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I exhort you or I encourage you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul here is appealing to them in grace as brothers and sisters. He's appealing to them using a term of endearment, brothers. And he's exhorting them to be unified. That word for exhort comes from a Greek word. It's a very cool Greek word, parakletos. It's the word given to the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus said, I will send you a comforter or a teacher, however yours translates it? It's the word for parakletos, to teach or instruct or to comfort. And here's the verb form where Paul is saying, I'm comforting you, I'm teaching you, I'm encouraging you. Not as those who are on the outside looking in, but by by teaching you as my fellow brothers. We're all in this together. That you would agree, and this means speak the same thing. The word literally is one speech, that you would all be of one speech as you come together and speak, that there be no divisions, it says. That word for divisions simply means schism, that there would be no factions, no breaking off among you. It means to tear or to plow this nice level ground as Jesus has established this church in Corinth. Make sure that no one comes through and plows and makes a break or a division in this land. What they were doing in Corinth, particularly, was they were appointing people to be the heads of movements, all based on this honorable badge of who's the wisest. In America today, there are lots of things that we value that aren't very honorable. <laughs> if you look at pop culture to see what the general public considers to be uh, you know, really good, you're going to find some things that, as a Christian, should probably horrify you. In Greece, they had a lot of the same traits as America today, but one of the things that was different is that they really, really, really cherished wisdom. We don't see much of that today in our culture, do we? They cherished wisdom. In fact, that word philosophy, do you know that that means to love wisdom? It comes from the word for love and the word for wisdom. You put them together, philosophy. Greek philosophy was a major part of their culture. They loved wisdom. 
And what was happening in this church as these people were coming together there in Greece is they were looking for the wisest men among them. And they were wanting to associate themselves with the wisest person. We're going to see later in this chapter, uh, or later in this passage, down at verse 12, where people were siding with Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Who was the wisest, the coolest in that culture? I want to be associated with that person. And what's happening when a church does that, when a church creates those types of groups, is a church is being torn apart. There's a plow going through and that land is being torn up because there is no unity in Christ anymore. It's all about allegiance to men and women. It's all about teams and competition. It's not about love anymore. This is prideful, worldly behavior. And this type of competition has no place in the church. The only competition that is allowed in the church is by excelling in things that are good and holy, (laughs) encouraging one another, motivating one another, provoking one another to love and good deeds. That's a holy competition. But this, in Corinth, this was a prideful, carnal, worldly competition. So Paul encourages them there in verse 10, the NASB says, to be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. I like the way the King James puts it, to be perfectly joined together. That's a better representation of that word. They're torn apart, but now they need to be put back together for stability as a church. It's a word that means to set a bone, a fractured bone back together. To look at something broken and to mend it with permanence. Paul is saying, you're broken. Let's fix it. Let's fix this. I want to show you other uses of this word just so you get a better idea of what Paul is seeing. Because we can read through this and think, yeah, their church had some problems. Their church was, you know, arguing a little bit. There was a little bit of backbiting going on. But they just need to get over it and move on. Well, Paul saw this as being very serious, that there was a real break in that local congregation. So I want to show you a few verses Here's one that you might not suspect. It's Mark 1, 19. Mark chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus was going on a little farther, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the net. What? Why did I pick that verse? (laughs) The word mending. Mending the nets. The nets were, were apart, and then they were being brought together. Do you know how strong a net has to be mended to be able to pull in things? Mending the nets. How about another one in Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews 11.3, where this word is used. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. It's that word prepared. The word prepared. We know according to the book of Revelation that God willed all things into existence and then he made them. He willed them into existence. Every atom that exists in the universe exists by His will alone. And then He put them together. He prepared them. He organized them. He established them. Taking multiple things and putting them together for stability. And maybe this one will hit closer to home. Galatians 6.1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one 
in a spirit of gentleness. It's that word restore. To be put back. Something was broken, something was separated, and it has to be brought back or restored. Things that were separated, brought back together. How bad of a situation is that for a local church? This church in Corinth. Baby church with baby Christians. All new to the gospel, trying to figure out all this church stuff. They're divided, they're separated, they're broken. And they have to be brought back together. How can that happen? Well, it's right there in verse 10. How can they be restored, mended? Well, it's by having the same mind and the same judgment. So what makes a strong and stable church? Unity in the most important things. By being of the same mind and of the same judgment regarding truth regarding Christ, regarding the gospel. These two terms together, mind and judgment, they emphasize the same thought. There's no real discernible difference between mind and judgment in this use. But what is happening here is they are genuinely seeking together in unity the will of God. That's what makes a strong and stable church, an authentic oneness about us as it pertains to seeking after the will of God. And I want us to look at a prayer of Jesus for the Corinthians. Keep your finger here, but turn back to John, John 17. Did you know Jesus prayed for the Corinthians in John chapter 17? Let's look at the heart of our Savior regarding being of one mind and of one judgment. John 17 verse 20, Jesus is giving his high priestly prayer. It's amazing this has been recorded for us to learn from today. John 17, 20, it says, Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning his disciples who were right there with him, but for those also who believe in me through their word. This includes the Corinthian church that would go on to believe in him. This includes us today who have believed in Him. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. That is not what was going on in Corinth. But that was the goal, to come back together, to be restored as one local body by being of the same mind and of the same judgment, pursuing the will of God and truth. There aren't multiple wills of God. We shouldn't have different factions in our church pursuing different wills of God. But together as one people, as one body, we pursue the will singular of God. Now this is not uniformity in anything outward. I hope you see that. Because there's a superficial oneness. There's a superficial unity that can exist regarding the things we wear, the things we say, how we move about, our little routines and traditions. That's not what this is about. It's about unity, not uniformity. I like this word from John MacArthur where he says, 
One of the main reasons that cults in our day have had such an impact on the world is their unity. Disharmony is not tolerated. Though misguided, misused, and often totalitarian, such unity is attractive to many people who are tired of religious uncertainty and ambiguity and confusion. When we're not pursuing uniformity, but rather unity in the midst of diversity, we're walking a a really fine line, aren't we? It's a tough balancing act because we all have our own convictions and our own presuppositions and our own preferences about things. But let us not do what the cults do and seek uniformity, some superficial outward unity that's actually hollow. We could do that. We could all come together and make, make a deal on what we should wear, what's allowed, what we can eat and drink and all that stuff. And, you know, we could say that we have unity. But that's not what Jesus prayed for, is it? There isn't uniformity between the Father and the Son because the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. But they are one, aren't they? There is but one God. And there are three distinct co-eternal persons. And so we come together as a church, and we're not looking for us all to be the same, but we want us all to have the same mind and the same judgment. We can be different, and we can be absolutely unified by pursuing the will of God in truth. That's the goal of the church. We have one goal, to glorify God in our faith, to speak in agreement regarding the truth. And these truths must override anything else that can divide. There are lots of things out there that can divide. There have been people who have left churches over paint colors. There have been people who have left churches over a disagreement that didn't actually exist, but they thought it existed. And instead of going and talking to that person, they just decided to leave. It should not be this way. The local church should be a reflection of unity in the truth. When we discover the gospel, when we discover the beauty of God's Word and the wisdom therein, there are truths here that can unite us over and against anything that could divide us. The truth of the Christian worldview, the power of Christ in us, is much more powerful, much stronger than anything that could ever come up and seek to separate us. We have the power of unity in the gospel. Some of you know that I have a, a podcast. People used to have radio shows, but that's not as much of a thing anymore. And podcasts are free, and anybody can do it. You don't have to be qualified at all, so that's why I have one. And uh, my friend and I, who lives in Indiana, we, we talk about this. This is the heart of the podcast. From a Christian perspective, when it comes to the, the vast world of Christendom. We're talking from groups that claim to be Christian, but you know they're not, all the way to churches that we're most comfortable with. How do we make sense of all these differences? And we have to figure this out as Christians today. Because whether we like it or not, we do exist in a world that has a lot of denominations and movements. How do we know what hills we're going to die on? How do we know if we come up to somebody and and greet that person as a brother or sister in Christ, or if we treat that person as a lost person who needs the gospel. How do we discern that in our lives? We have to understand that as Christians because there are so many doctrines 
that have divided us. And in the local church, it's of utmost importance that we continually seek unity. And that begins with the leadership and goes all the way down. It starts with the plurality of leadership that God establishes in his local churches. And let me tell you, that's tough. It's almost like the smaller the group, the harder it is to be unified. Because me and Mark and Tyler, we don't always see eye to eye on things. But we are constantly reminding ourselves that we're only going to move forward in unity. You have to move forward in unity. There cannot be factions and divisions in local churches. We've said for a long time as a nation, united we stand, divided we fall. Are you seeing the divisions? Are you feeling the fall today in our nation? Well, the same is true for local churches. United, we can stand, we can stick around. But divided, it'll never work. Never, ever work. The Corinthians themselves were falling. This church in Corinth, as young as it was, was starting to fall, starting to falter. So the goal of every church has to be this oneness of mind and this oneness of judgment. And I want to give you some more passages that we won't turn to. We're just going to hit them. They'll be up on the screen. But I want you to see how this is the theme in the New Testament over and over and over again, unity and oneness. Acts 4.32, the early, early, early church, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. You don't get much more unified than that, do you? One heart and soul. Just like David and Jonathan, so close. They loved each other as one loves his own soul. The early church had that unity. Let's look at some exhortations from Paul. Romans 15, 5 through 7. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Great passage. Philippians 2. 2 and 3. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see the immediate application of unity in these passages? Have this have this oneness, have the same mind, and then treat one another in love? Who could break that? If we have that as a church, we're unbreakable because that's the power of God. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. It's the goal of every church. Unity, same mind, same judgment. 
But the Corinthians began to abandon gospel-mindedness for worldly thinking. They sought to associate themselves with human sources of wisdom. They were no longer pursuing the foolishness of the cross. And that's going to be Paul's whole argument here. We're getting into a section that's going to span several chapters where Paul is making the case that the foolishness of the cross is better than anything that man can provide you. The Corinthians had abandoned that, and they needed to be brought back in their thinking. Let's look again, verse 11, down to verse 17. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul heard something through the grapevine about this church from Chloe's people. Who was Chloe and who were her people? (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, the only certain answer that we have is we're uncertain. (laughs) We don't know about this Chloe, but she was a wealthy Asian woman, it appears. It appears that she lived in what they called Asia back then, that she was wealthy because it's very likely that the people who reported to Paul were her slaves. Uh, Most commentators agree that was the case. And they communicated to Paul that things in Corinth were getting bad, that things were rocky. I want to take a brief moment and just point out that this was not gossip. It might be easy to think, well, what were, let's see, something was going on in Corinth and it went to at least Chloe and her people and then it went to Paul and there were probably some steps in between. How is that not gossip? News spreading through the grapevine. Well, it's important for you to recognize that you can talk about people righteously. Just because you're talking about people, that doesn't mean it's gossip. 99% of it is your motivation. Are you motivated by love or are you motivated by tearing someone else down? And from what it appears, Chloe and her people and Paul himself were motivated by love in this conversation about the Corinthians. And as Paul heard it, he recognized that the matter wasn't just pertinent for the moment, but that this was a major issue, a major issue in the city of Corinth. And Paul's response here really sets the tone for the rest of the letter. As I stated earlier, the Corinthians were creating teams among themselves. They were competing for the badge of who's the wisest, i.e. the coolest among the Corinthians. Today, we would pick all sorts of other stuff, wouldn't we? Music or, uh, I don't know, how we dress or Who's got the coolest beard? Let's see. Uh, We might pick something like that. But for the Corinthians, it was all about wisdom, or at least being seen as being wise. And Paul said that they were picking out names, appointing people as heads of their different factions. Now, it's likely, as you look down and you see, Paul used his own name, he used Apollos, he used Cephas. It's likely that these were just hypothetical names. 
We have no evidence that Peter, Cephas, had any real influence in Corinth, that he was ever there. Uh, it's likely that Paul was just using a, a hypothetical kind of scenario, and he does that again in chapter 4, and we'll get to that sometime in the next decade. But uh, uh, he was basically just saying, look, you're picking out other humans, you're allying with other humans instead of finding unity in Christ. They were creating separate bodies among themselves instead of being one body with many members. Where do we get that teaching anyway? One body with many members. It's in this very book, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because they did not understand the unity of Christ. And what we see in this situation with the Corinthians is the human tendency to dispute and the fallen tendency to war with one another to exalt other human beings, and to pledge allegiance to other human beings. That's our tendency. Some of you might feel that in yourself, that you like to engage in dispute. Some of you maybe. <laughs> I know I do. It's a fallen tendency. I love to debate. I've always loved to debate. I've always loved to use my words to tear people down. It's bad, isn't it? <laughs> it's always been a part of my nature. And it's a fallen aspect of my nature. And we all have these things that we're drawn toward that create disunity instead of unity. We are born seeking to win and to exalt ourselves. And it's wrong. You might be wondering, though, as you look at those names at the end of verse 12, what about that one party that says that they were of Christ? Some people were picking out other men, and this one party says Christ. Well, that might not necessarily mean that they were thinking correctly, because it's likely that those who were saying that they were of Christ were saying, we have become our own teachers, and we need no other human teacher. That Christ is all that we need, and you guys have Cephas, you guys have Apollos, you guys have Paul, and we're our own teacher. We just, it's just Christ and us. And maybe you've met some people that way before. They don't need a church to tell them what to do. I'm good with Jesus, just me and him. And that's also wrong thinking. And so Paul calls this out as the central issue. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Obviously, these are rhetorical questions that the only answer could be no. Absolutely not. Christ is not divided at all. And Paul emphasizes the death of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ in this verse. He also emphasizes the identification with Christ's church. Paul writing here says, Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Why would any of you point to Paul or whoever they may have been pointing out to? Only one was crucified for us. Many were crucified in world history, but only one was crucified for us. He's the only one that should be exalted. He also asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is baptism? It's not how we get saved, but it's a reflection of our salvation. And it's identification with Christ publicly and with His church. It's not Paul's church. It's not Peter's church. It's not Apollos' church. It's Jesus' church. Therefore, exalt Christ. 
ally with Christ. It goes against our nature to exalt ourselves and to ally with ourselves or to form groups that would recognize how sweet, awesome, great we are or to run off to another group because that guy over there is sweet and awesome and great. Therefore, let's go exalt him. Let's put his face on the billboard. Exalt Christ alone is Paul's message. He is the only one who has provided life for us. And he's the only one worthy of being exalted. These Corinthians had missed this. And apparently they were taking baptism in particular and weaponizing it against each other. Apparently they wanted to be baptized by the person they thought was the coolest. So that way they could walk around saying, I was baptized by so-and-so. And then another guy can hear and say, oh, well, that's pretty cool, but <laughs> guess who I was baptized by? How nasty is this? Taking God's good gift and weaponizing it against each other. And this has been done throughout church history. Baptism has been a weapon against people throughout church history. We see it in various movements. Some people won't accept other people's baptism. Though they're gospel believers, well, you weren't baptized in the right church. You can't be counted as a member here unless you're baptized here. Those types of things are weapons against the people of God. We just see it over and over and over again in the Christian culture. Can't we all just get along? Well, not perfectly. The answer is yes, but with an asterisk. We can get better at this. We can orient our thinking better on these issues, these issues that divide us. And we can have more unity as Christians, both globally and locally. We can have a better understanding of the unity of Christ. Look at Paul's mission. Verse 17. His mission was not to baptize. Christ did not send me to baptize, he said. What was the mission? To preach the gospel. He did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not baptism, but the gospel. The foolishness of the cross. True wisdom. That's what Paul's mission was, to take the cross and put it before people. He says, I desire to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. That's what it was about for Paul. Let's back up to verse 14. He makes this statement, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Wow. Wow. I remember as being young in the ministry and having the first opportunity to be involved in a baptism. That's exciting. It feels like a step. It feels like something really honorable, like you would remember this date and remember this person, like it's just a big deal. And I'm not saying it's not a big deal, but I do want us to recognize what Paul says about this. I thank God that I baptized none of you. He didn't see it as some special right that made him something better than anybody else. He didn't see it as something that would make him more mature or more honorable among men. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Well, why is that? Verse 15, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. 
Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. You get to see some human elements of writing Scripture here where Paul couldn't remember something. Notice that God didn't allow him to make any error. The Scripture's still inerrant. But we see that Paul was just a man like us. And baptism, is it important? Yeah, but I couldn't remember all of them. I know uh, these names, yeah, but I don't know. Were there any others? What a statement he's making to them. They were taking baptism and putting it up on a pedestal and then weaponizing it against each other. And Paul says, not a big deal to me. I don't even remember all the people I baptized, except a few notable names. That's it. He's telling them this to make a key point. Though baptism is important as an ordinance in the church, all believers in Jesus should be baptized. It is not a sacrament that gets you to salvation. Baptism is not something that God gives us so that we can be qualified for grace or that we can be moved closer to being saved. Baptism is something that is given to the church as a reflection of the salvation that already has taken place in a human heart. It's an ordinance, not a sacrament. It's something we observe. It's not something we do to earn anything. And Paul saw his involvement in baptisms as much less important than gospel teaching. Remember, he was there 18 months. He was there a year and a half. The birth of a church, people coming to know the Lord from all over. He had so many opportunities to baptize. And he saw baptism as much less important as far as his mission is concerned than preaching the gospel and by continuing in gospel teaching. That was the mission he was given. He states it clearly again, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize. It was not the mission God had given him. His mission was gospel teaching. This is all about the power of God and the gospel to save human hearts and to keep those hearts united by faith. He says that his mission was to preach the gospel, and then he qualifies that, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. What was his mission? Well, to declare Christ as Lord in plain language. That was his mission, to be simple in his gospel teaching. You know the Bible, you know the New Testament was written in Greek, I'm assuming most of you know that, but it wasn't the highfalutin Greek. It was Koine Greek. The Bible was written in Koine Greek, and that word Koine means common. It was the common man's language. The Bible, the New Testament, originally in its original manuscripts, was transcribed in the common man's language. You might think of some associations that religious people have with high-sounding language when it comes to religion. The King's English. You know, God doesn't hear your prayers unless you use, you know, the proper, proper English. That's not true. That's not true. He hears any prayer as long as your heart's in the right place. Some churches have associated Latin as being God's language. And the result of that in the Roman Empire was after several years, people didn't know what on earth God had said. They didn't speak Latin. And so when Wycliffe comes along and he starts printing the Bible in English and the Bible starts getting out in the common man's language, 
Well, those who wanted to hold the power all to themselves were angry because you can't have this, this word of God being down in the, the mire and the clay of the common man. But that's how God first delivered it because that's where you find sinful people is down in the mire and the clay, isn't it? And so as Paul received his mission from Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, it was particularly to preach the gospel in simple terms not in cleverness of speech, not to be impressive to people, not to put on a show before men, but to just hold up the cross and let people see the beauty of the gospel. That was his only mission, was to point all attention to Jesus, that whatever language he used, it had to be subservient to the glory of Christ, that he wouldn't try to squeeze in his own glory, sounding smart, sounding wise, looking real nice. None of that was allowed if it was going to cloud the gospel, if it was going to cloud the cross. Paul, like John the Baptist, had to decrease that Christ must increase. That was his mission. It was about the power of God and the gospel, not about human cunning. And anybody who goes out and seeks to win converts through manipulative speech or has any type of means that is meant to manipulate emotions, to draw people in through some other means than the power of the cross. All of those methods are wicked. They're evil. They're to be rejected. Because what does it say here in verse 17? If you're relying on cleverness of speech, the cross is made void. If you're seeking to win converts through manipulative means, the cross has been emptied of its power. We don't get saved because we were drawn in by something really clever. That's, that might be what we think in that moment. But what saves us? The power of God and the power of God alone. God doesn't need our strategies, does He? He doesn't need us to be cunning or clever. He is all-powerful. He's not 98% powerful and waiting for us to bring that other 2% to get people saved. It's not how it works. Robert Gramacki says, Paul knew that he was responsible to Christ not only for what he preached, but for how he preached. Content and method must harmonize. Faulty content is heretical, and so is wrong methodology. Evangelicals too often condemn the former and approve the latter. He says, and listen to this sentence, if worldly logic or non-scriptural reasons are used to move sinners to a decision for Christ, then the cross has been stripped of its divine significance. If worldly logic or non-scriptural reasons are used to move sinners to a decision for Christ, then the cross has been stripped of its divine significance. Leon Morris says, The faithful preaching of the cross results in men ceasing to put their trust in any human device and relying rather on God's work in Christ. He says, A reliance on rhetoric would cause men to trust in men the very antithesis of what preaching the cross is meant to affect. The whole point of preaching the cross is to say, we don't got it. 
And so if someone is wooed in to make a decision for Christ because that person thinks we got it, we're doing it wrong. We must look to put Christ and his cross up in front of people and to make it so clear. To preach a risen Savior, not looking to be cool while we do it. Because let me tell you, you're not cool. You're not cool. Some of you have given up trying. (laughs) And that's a good place to be. Because it's not about being cool. It's not about the lights and the smoke and the programs and this and that. All those things can have a place, but it's not about that. It's about the gospel alone that Jesus, the man who is God, came here, died on that cross and rose again. That we can be made right with him through faith alone. That has to be our mission. The Corinthians lost it. They had lost it. They were joining with other men and putting emphasis on men instead of on the cross. Beyond being sinful, seeking to impress the world is just a fool's errand. You're never going to win. You will never win. But if you seek to be faithful and obedient to Christ, you can't lose. When it comes to the world, it's a losing battle. But if you're constantly bowing your knees before the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, you can't lose. The gospel is meek and lowly, and so shall we be. I want to close with Romans 1.16. Great verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We do not bring power to the gospel. It is the power of God. We are just instruments in God's hands. We are vessels He chooses to use to display that power. And as a church, as a local church, if this is the place where we find unity that transcends everything else, we're going to last. We're going to make it. If we are constantly fixed on the unity in the gospel, we will live, and we will have this fellowship together. No matter if we're called Payson Bible Church or Orchard Hills Bible Church, no matter if we're located here or if God takes this property away from us, you thought about that? No matter where we are, no matter what year it is, no matter who's around, if we are finding our unity that transcends all opportunities for division, if we're finding our our unity in the gospel alone, we will live. We'll be okay. Because God has saved us by his power, and through the gospel, he keeps us by his power. Let's pray. God, thank you again for this wonderful word that you have given to us. Allow us to see the application of this very important teaching each and every day that our hearts would be mended together in the gospel, that we as a church would be unified in the gospel, that we would not wander off and seek to follow other people, but that we would only exalt Christ, that we would only follow Christ, and that we would appreciate each other and love each other and let one another serve us by the gifts you have given them, but cause our harmony always to be in that initial message that saved us, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. 
Lord, thank you. We love you. Bless this last song as we sing it together. Have us sing it in unity and if we're capable, in harmony. In Jesus' name, amen.